Well, good morning, family. Why don't you uh, join me standing to your feet? We're going to read the Word of God together. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 9 and 11 says this, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. If there is a book titled How to Grow Your Church, there'd probably be a chapter on what not to preach on a Sunday morning. Uh, the subheading would probably be this subject here today that we are going to talk about. Uh, family, this may be literally the hardest sermon that I've ever preached here at Proclamation Church. Uh, many guys have reached out to me uh, and let me know that you are praying for me, either through email, uh, text message, in person, and I want to thank you so much uh, because it was extremely encouraging. Um, I do believe that the Lord will be glorified this weekend. Um, I truly believe that, uh, and my hope is that this sermon will grow us closer as the family of God, um, that this would be a place where people can be open and honest about their struggles and find freedom in the love of Jesus. As we continue in our conversation about deconstruction, there has been, in my opinion, no louder argument for stepping away from the faith than the treatment of and the, the denial of the way of life for the LGBTQ plus community. On one side of the argument, it has been viewed through the lens of injustice because it seems to fall in line with America's tradition of its failure of inequality. On the other side of the argument, it's viewed as completely wrong and should be viewed as such. The narrative that our culture tends to put forward in this conversation is that we only have two options in our relationship with the LGBTQ plus community, affirmation or alienation. Well, today, my hope is that I want to show you a third option that Jesus presented. Jesus' ministry was quite odd, was it not? He was one that would uphold perfectly and completely God's standards of righteousness and holiness, yet at the same time, never was there one who so effectively drew in the people who are both unrighteous and unholy. The prostitutes or the tax collectors or those with broken marriages all found their way to Jesus and being around him. In fact, the last week of Jesus' life captures this paradox. Though he had never broken any laws or done anything wrong, the religious right would go on to call out for his crucifixion while at the same time a former prostitute was washing his feet with her tears, and a thief defending his reputation from the cross. Jesus' ministry was summarized well in John 1, through, uh, 1, verse 14, that says that he was full of both grace and truth. And I would say that we cannot have this conversation without being full of both grace and truth, because one without the other is not a faithful representation of Jesus and who he is. So this morning, as I attempt to answer some of the questions of sexuality in the church, I want to strive to do so less as a theologian and more as a pastor and a friend. What has shaped my direction in this conversation over the years has been many conversations with friends who would identify as LGBTQ and not just identify in it, but identify with it joyfully. But there've been also people who experience same-sex attraction who I know while at the same time fight to honor God and be obedient to Jesus in their sexuality. So the latter group, 
those individuals do not desire to have the struggle or wrestle with this particular lust. In fact, the depression and sadness that many of them feel because of their singleness is ever-present, but at the same time, the joy that they are seeking to experience because of the cross stands out to me. There's something to be said about establishing relationships with those who experience same-sex attraction. We're going to talk about that soon, but we can't have this conversation anymore without thinking about them and what they deal with on a daily basis that many of us don't deal with. The reality is, family, we all fall short of the glory of God, but I can firmly say and believe that I desire to follow these individuals like they follow Jesus, because in a culture that is screaming at them to live how they feel, they are daily dying to themselves because they understand that Jesus is better. I know there are probably some listening or who will listen to this later on who right now have been hurt or ostracized or pushed aside by the church, even cast out over this issue of sexuality. We may have heard heartbreaking stories of individuals whose parents have disowned them when they decided to come out, which to me is extremely tragic. At the same time, when people are needing the constant love of a parent the most, they were rejected. Perhaps even more tragically, sometimes it's done in the name of Jesus. What greater lie could we ever tell about our Savior than to distance ourselves from the hurting and the broken? So that's the context that I want to speak from today. There are three people in particular that I have in mind that I want to address at the beginning of the sermon. For some of you, in having this conversation, it doesn't matter what I say or what the Bible says, your mind is already made up. That you have decided that this is the route that you're going to go, that this is what you believe. And I want to challenge you today in what it truly means to understand Jesus, not just as Savior, but Jesus as Lord that he does truly save us from our sins, but when he becomes not just Savior, it becomes Lord, he rules every aspect of our lives, which includes sexuality. So the question that I need to ask is this, do you trust him and are you ready for him to lead you in this area as Lord? That's a question really for all of us, honestly, in all areas of life. But if you would say that your mind is made up on this issue and if you feel like right now, as we are about to begin this thing and dive into the text, deeply, if you feel like you're not ready to hear this or have this conversation, you have my permission. In just a second, I'm going to pray. You have my permission to step out. And in your stepping out, this is not me looking at you and anyone else looking at you saying that, you know, you're wrong or whatever the case may be. It just means that right now you're just punting the conversation for another day, and that's okay. You're okay to do that. There's a second group of you in here that would say that you haven't landed on a decision at all in this conversation, where because of the relationships you have and because of your indifference in Scripture, you just have yet to land on this, and I want to challenge you by saying that you're probably being more hurtful than helpful. And so as we talk through this today, I want you to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have this conviction that I believe would challenge you in the right way. And finally, the third group, there's some of you in here who just believe it's flat out wrong, but your position is characterized more by bigotry and intolerance than a compassionate Christian conviction. And today, my hope is that you will not leave out of here without being challenged to think through this conversation in the lens of the gospel. And so with that being said, I want to pray. We're going to dive in this, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do in a difficult subject like this today. Let me pray. 
Father, we need you desperately. I need you. As I've been thinking through this subject uh, for the last uh, month, really, leading up to this and lack of sleep and things like that, your spirit has reminded me that there's something beautiful in your word, that we can see it as truth. And because it's truth, it guides us to live in such a way that brings glory and honor to you. And so I pray that that would be the case. Father, I pray for those in this room who are struggling, who may experience same-sex attraction, Father, that you would remind them today that you are with them, again, through the power of your Holy Spirit. For those of us who may not experience this, God, I pray that you would give us, again, through the power of your Holy Spirit, a love and a patience and a kindness that people feel like they can be open and honest and transparent with us. Lord, let your church be the church. Father, would you speak through me? May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Guys, the very first thing that I want to say in this conversation, I want to talk to the church, okay? As the church, we need to understand that as the people of God, in this conversation, we have dropped the ball. We have dropped the ball. What do I mean by that? The church has been historically hypocritical and horrible to the LGBTQ plus community, and I don't typically say this because there's no shame in the family of God, but shame on us. Shame on us in operating to them in a, such a way where they feel like that they can't understand and fully know the love of Jesus well because of us. I think Jesus would be deeply disappointed in our actions towards them. Why do I say that? Well, look at the latter half of the text that we read today, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We must understand that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's full of sinners in desperate need of grace, for which includes every single one of us. There's a verse in Scripture that's often misunderstood by most everyone. It's their interpretation of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, that says this, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? This verse gets misinterpreted by people saying that the Bible says not to judge, or we see statements that says only God can judge me, right? First, God is the only person that can judge us, but that does not give us license to do as we please because when he does the judge, it's not gonna be a slap on the wrist. Second, this verse is usually quoted to mean that we have no right to tell someone what they're doing is wrong. Here's the thing, it can't mean that because Jesus spent his entire life correcting errors, and he commands us as the family of God to be clear on his word as well. So even though Jesus was clear about what was right and wrong, here's the thing, he didn't judge the world. What does it say in John 3.17? We know John 3.16, right? But John 3.17, it says that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Another translation is judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What that means is by Jesus telling us the truth of who he is and after telling us the truth of what he is and what he does, guess what? He then brings us close. He brings us in. He made us sinners, his friends. So here's what we need to understand then. We judge someone when we assess their position 
or excuse me, you judge someone not when you assess their position, but when you dismiss them as a person. It's not telling someone the truth that is judging them. It's what you do after you tell them the truth that determines whether you judge them or not. Judging assumes that you are righteous and they are guilty, and thus guilty them should get away from righteous you. We can and should never do that. What that means is that when it comes to this issue, when someone disagrees with us or comes out, we don't push them away, we draw them close because that's what Jesus would have done to us. I heard it say this way before, we as the people of God must love our gay neighbor more than we love our position on sexual morality. What I'm not saying is that we give up biblical conviction. That's not what I'm saying. What I mean is that our relationship with them must not be contingent on them agreeing with us. Jesus is our example of this. I mentioned this earlier, but nowhere in Scripture do we see Jesus bending on God's righteous laws. But when he came into conflict with them, rather than crush us, what did he do? He allowed himself to be crushed. We have to learn to say as the family of God, as the church, I love you more than I love being right. And even if you don't see things my way, I'm going to keep bringing you close and remain committed to you. And this is where we as a family of God have dropped the ball so badly. We fail to live out Jesus' ministry. I would go so far as to say that the church should be the safest place on the planet for teenagers and adults and anyone with same-sex attraction to be able to come out. Why should I say that? Because sinners were always safe exposing their hearts to Jesus. Can we say that about us? Again, what I'm not saying is that we can scent or agree, and I'm going to show us what the Bible says in just a second, but what it does mean is that we never turn away, and we never stop loving, and we never stop drawing people close. What that means is, church, is we must be the biggest advocates against discrimination and abuse, period. And where we have not, we must repent. Some of you have suffered abuse in the name of Jesus. Friends, that was not Jesus. And as long as you attend Proclamation Church, or if you're listening to this and desire to find a place to call home, we are going to strive to the best of our abilities to meet you where you are, but always call you to truth with as much grace as possible. So if I can, I want to be truthful to both the church today and to our LGBTQ plus community. First, truth to the church. I already shared how as a church, we've done a poor job in loving the LGBTQ plus community well, and that we have not done been a healthy place for anyone who struggles or wrestles where they can be open and honest about those struggles and what they wrestle with especially those who are in the LGBTQ plus community. So how do we go about this then? Well, first, we must learn to be real. We need to learn to be real. What do I mean by that? We need to learn to have strong, healthy conversations. We need to learn what it means to be vulnerable. Oftentimes, we don't know how to approach this conversation well. Let's, let's just be honest. We take a stand on biblical perspective, which we should, but outside of that, we don't know how to approach the conversation well. We need to learn to understand that this is not a us versus them conversation, but recognize that there are people in our midst who experience same-sex attraction. 
So when we speak about homosexuality and hurtful ways around brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't know that we may be adding on another yoke on the neck of someone who simply just wants to talk to someone about what they're struggling with. In order for us to be able to speak about this well, I believe it starts with us as the family of God being able to talk about struggles, period. Period. What I mean by this is I may not experience same-sex attraction, but what are the things that I do experience that I can be open and honest with with those who I would say are brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking with me? What area of lust is there? What unhealthy emotion is there? What's a crippling vice that I run to? What is it that Jesus is saying, let me be Lord over that I'm still holding on to? To make it plain, where are the areas in our lives that we are scared to be known in that we have an opportunity to bring into the light so that brothers and sisters can walk with us in repentance towards Jesus? Listen, when we not only create a culture of weakness and vulnerability, but, they can, and they, but then can actually live in weakness and vulnerability, it is only then that people with the deepest longings and hurts will feel more comfortable letting others in. I've said this before and I'll say it again, but we as Christians who've experienced the grace of Jesus oftentimes live our lives as if we don't need it anymore. I wanted to, Micah. It was on the top of my head. Guys, we've just operated in a way that may have caused someone who's hurting and struggling to not be known by Jesus based off how we've treated them. Not only should we learn how to be real in conversations and vulnerability with each other, but number two, we need to learn to live as the family of God. I've mentioned family of God quite often today. That's very intentional. Why? This is twofold here. First, in the family of God, there are singles who may never get married, and guess what? That is okay. There are people in our midst who may never get married. We have bought the lie that we are not experiencing everything it means to be human unless we are somehow romantically linked with someone else, and that has been a wildfire in the church. As followers of Jesus, listen, we should celebrate marriage as a good gift. We should. We're going to speak about it. We're going to preach about it because it honors God. But here's the thing. The beauty of marriage, there's so much that points to the gospel. I can, I can have a whole sermon on this. As a matter of fact, I did. We preached on this when we were in our Ephesians series, Ephesians chapter 5. Go listen to it. Preached a whole sermon on the beauty of marriage. But for this point, we need to understand that marriage is a good gift. We should celebrate it as such, but we need to readily remember and communicate that marriage is not promised to any of us, and to say otherwise is a misrepresentation of the new covenant that actually holds singleness as a life of dignity, honor, and holiness, and you see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. When we hold marriage as the ultimate thing to achieve in life, we are doing harm to those who experience same-sex attraction who feel less than because their attraction may never change away from the same sex. We also do harm to our hetero brother, uh, heterosexual brothers and sisters who begin to doubt their worth because they just knew at this point in life that they'd be married and they're not married yet and they're wondering what's wrong with them. 
What if instead we begin to show that singleness actually isn't a problem? What if we actually communicated that sexual desire isn't a problem? That in fact, we can communicate that the desires that we have come from the fact that we were created in the image of God, who is the ultimate source of desire. And we see that play out in his relationship to us. He desires us. (laughs) He wants us. And in him desiring us, we were created to desire him in return and his love and his joy and his purposes over our own. What if we understood that concept better in the context of the family of God by spurring each other on to say yes to Jesus and no to false loves? Remember I said this is twofold. Here's the second part of that. Paul repeatedly refers to the local church as God's household. It's the family of God, and Christians are to be family to one another. We see this play out in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. In the ESV, it says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Sam Alberry, one of the pastors at Emmanuel Nashville and one of the most prominent thinkers on same-sex attraction in the church, says this in his book, Is God Anti-Gay? And speaking about the church's family, he says the church should see itself as an immediate family. Nuclear families within the church need the input and involvement of the wider church family because nobody is to be self-contained. Those that open up their family life to others find that it's a great blessing. He goes on to say singles need to experience some of the joys of family life. Children get to benefit from the influence of other older Christians. Parents get to have the encouragement of others supporting them and families as a whole get to learn something of what it means to serve Christ by being outward looking as a family. I love that. When I I think of that personally, I think of Tina and, and Jasmine and Caitlin and Bridget and Shanice who pay special attention to my daughter as she navigates this preteen stage. Praise God for them. So I'm gonna lose my mind. I think of Ethan and Doug and Will who have all been intentional with my son who's now processing the conversation of baptism, which we were just having yesterday. And you wanna know what he, what he said, what Michael said? I'm thinking about baptism because Mr. Will said he got baptized when he was 21. You remember that conversation with him? Bro, the influence of the family of God is so important. There's something about needing each other. Let's get after it, family. Are we intentionally and purposely growing as the family of God where people feel like that this is a place that they can come in and be known and loved? To know Jesus better. Now, if I can, I want to speak truth to the LGBTQ plus community. We started this message by looking at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and we'll use that as our guide. But before we do that, I want to say that one of the best sermons that I've ever heard on this subject was by Pastor John Tyson. He pastors in in New York City. Uh, He uh, had a whole sermon series called The Controversial Jesus. Just about every sermon in that series is amazing. The guy is super smart, and he's got a great accent, so it's easy to listen to. But he had a sermon titled Jesus in the Gay Community. I would highly recommend listening to it to get a deeper insight, but a lot of what he said I will share here in this moment. 
But there are a few more passages in the Bible that directly address homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, 1 Corinthians 6, in which we just read, 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, Romans chapter 1, 24 through 27. Every single one of these, like the passage in 1 Corinthians that we read, speak about homosexuality in explicitly negative terms. The words Paul uses there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we translate men who have sex with men are malico, which is the soft effeminate, and arsenokoatai, which is sex between males. Every major Greek writer and philosopher used these same words to refer exclusively to homosexual relationships. Now, I'll say this. Many individuals who identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community and those who are proponents of the lifestyle who have actually studied the Greek and studied the text, they will take this text and they will argue a few things. One of the very first things that they will argue is this that Paul doesn't have in view committed same-sex relationships because they didn't exist back then. Essentially, they would say he was thinking of male prostitution or man-boy love. Same-sex relationships as we conceived them weren't around at that time, so there's no way that Paul could be condemning the lifestyle. But that argument simply is not true. Historian Thomas Hubbard, who isn't a Christian, wrote the definitive work on homosexuality in the ancient world. There's a book that he wrote called Homosexuality in Greece and Rome. It's a little bit more heady textbook, but would recommend it. He shows that homosexuality actually existed in a wide variety of forms in the Greek and Roman world, including committed same-sex partners. And they are always referred to by the terms that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Malachi and Arsenicoetai. Putting it in the same way that Sam Alberry does, to say that Paul says here the, that these words would not apply to same-sex relationships today requires the most tortuous methods of interpretation. That there's no doubt Paul had in mind exactly what we're talking about when we talk about same-sex relationships. Let's look at another passage, Romans chapter 1. Paul's talking about the human, human race's rejection of God's authority because we rejected God's authority. He says this in verse, Romans chapter 1, verse 26. This is why God delivered them, us, over to degrading passions. For even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The males in the same way also left natural relations with females and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Richard Hayes in his book, Awaiting the Redemption of Our Bodies, says that Paul here depicts gay and lesbian activity as an outward epitome of the inward posture of sin, a rejection of the creator's design. He goes on to say that's unnatural. But then how do we get around it then when our friends communicate that it just feels natural to them? Family, I have to say, just because something feels natural doesn't make it right. And we know that to be true because sin has corrupted every part of us. What feels or feels right or feels good doesn't make it right or good. If you're a parent, you've run into this before. I remember a long time ago, I, can't, I couldn't remember the, the, like the exact thing that happened when I was uh, thinking through this illustration. I just remember the conversation that happened afterwards. True was like three or four, and she did something. And I was like, like what, are, what were you thinking? Why'd you do that, 
right? And her response was, literally, I don't know. I just wanted to do it. And it's like, I, I chuckled. I remember when she told me that I laughed. But I was like, yeah, you wanted to do it because like, we want to do what feels good to us or right to us, even when something's not right or good. Now, I use that example not to say that true being disobedient to her parents is on the same level as sexual desire, but at the same time, what feels good to us should not be used as a guide for us to live our lives based off. If Romans 1 is true, something has gone wrong with even what we think is, feels good or right. Your sexual desire, gay or straight, on their own will always lead outside of God's will every single time. We also see in the Old Testament, Leviticus 20, verse 13, it says, if a man lies with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. The other passages in the Old Testament are similar to this. However, some who have read Scripture will argue this point, that the Old Testament law doesn't apply to us anymore. Here are the most common objections you will hear when it comes to these passages. Well, we don't heed all the Old Testament laws on things like what we eat or wear, so why, why should we listen to this one? First, I already showed you that this isn't just an Old Testament thing. The New Testament is explicitly talking about this, right? It's more clear on it than the Old Testament. Second, there are different kinds of laws in the Old Testament that we need to understand. We have moral laws and ceremonial laws. When Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law, he meant that he was the embodiment of everything that the ceremonial laws were pointing to. All the stuff about cleanliness, all the things about the diet, right? All of those things were to teach Israel about his coming, and now that he was there, those things were no longer necessary, right? In the same way, uh, you had the, the civil laws. We're not a theocracy, so we don't adhere to those things, right? Essentially, what Jesus was saying is like, listen, like, you can look at a picture all day long and be like, oh, yeah, that's, that's who that is. But when you actually see me in person, it makes more sense. I'm, I'm a clear picture of what, you, what you're thinking here. So he's shown us that, but then what he was talking about wasn't the moral law. In fact, he was pointing people to the moral law, what it looked like to live it out in practice. What he didn't mean was that I came to abolish the law, now I'm putting away all the moral commands like murder, or adultery, or homosexuality because God never changes. To which then people argue, well, Jesus never spoke about it. My friend uh, Jerome, who's a pastor in uh, Raleigh, he literally just preached on this subject last weekend. So I was like, let me listen to him, see what he says. Um, he calls this the red letter argument, which I never heard that before. But essentially, when you look in Scripture, if you have, actually have a physical copy and not the warm glow of your phone or iPad on your face, right, uh, you've got red letters that Jesus spoke, right? So the red letter argument. And what they would say is Jesus never mentioned anything about homosexuality in any of the things that he says, so it has to be okay. Well, again, this isn't true. Jesus affirmed the creative order found in Genesis and the Mosaic law that declared sex to be permissible only between a man and woman in a covenant marriage. Anything that deviates from that, Mark 7, 21, Jesus called pernea. It is true that Jesus didn't list out all the possible deviations, but there are two ways you can declare that something's wrong, right? You can list out 
every single possible variation that there is, or you can simply affirm what's right. It's like this. If there were five women here on stage and one of them was my mom, I could tell you the four that weren't, that's not my mom, right? Or I can say, that one right there, that's my mom, right? Either approach would serve the same purpose. So Jesus, in repeatedly affirming the mosaic understanding of the sanctity of sex within a heterosexual marriage, Jesus disallowed all the different deviations from that, whatever variations that they would take. To put it in perspective, the scriptures never record Jesus saying the words idolatry, rape, fraud, bestiality either. But is anyone arguing that these things are okay for us to do today? Furthermore, saying Jesus never talked about it pits the words of Jesus against the scriptures, which we're gonna talk about that next week with Rev Kev. Jesus said that all Christian scripture is inspired, which that means is, in Jesus' mind, the black letters hold just as much weight as the red letters. To that, some would argue then, well, church leaders disagree on this issue as a whole. That's true. There are many churches who would uh, uh, identify themselves as affirming, right, from a cultural standpoint. But the vast consensus of evangelical theologians see this as clear in the Bible. And that's not even taken into consideration the opinion of the church worldwide and the collective witness of Christian history. For 2,000 years, Christians have understood this issue to be clear. Now, I need to say this out of the gate. I have empathy for the arguments that are brought. I do, and the reason why is because I have family members and friends who I love that all of this affects them. And if we're honest, it's a lot easier to simply just ignore what God has spoken clearly on. It is. But let me tell you why we as a church have to be clear on this subject for two reasons. Reason one, in Revelation chapter two, Jesus rebukes the church in Thyatira for tolerating someone whose teaching led people into sexual sin. Revelation 2.20, let's read it. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to do what? Practice sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. If you read the whole context of that in Revelation, he's like, yo, there's some things that church of Thyatira, you're doing really well. But on this, you're compromising. And in their compromising, he threatened to remove his presence from those churches. That means that Jesus is not just against those who do the teaching, he's against those who are tolerating the teaching as well. So in this conversation, family, we're going to offend somebody on this subject. It's either the world or it's going to be Jesus. And my hope is that we won't offend Jesus here. The second reason is this. There's a website called Church Clarity that said it's unfair for gay people to come to your church and not know where you stand on this issue. They build deep relationships where they feel like they're going to be completely affirmed, and then it feels like a complete bait and switch. And we don't want to do that here. To which I'll say this, at Proclamation Church, we are not an affirming church in the way that culture would say. However, we are an accepting church. 
We are an accepting church. What do I mean by that? We will accept anyone as they are. Our very first value, we're gonna be a church that engages all people. What that means is no matter your race, your age, your socioeconomic status, your sexuality, we want you to experience the love of Jesus. So that means you're accepted here. That means that, that if there's someone in here who's in a committed same-sex relationship, could they come to Proclamation Church? Yes, they can. They might feel a little uncomfortable after listening to this online, though. But they're more than welcome to come. If you come, you need to know that I genuinely want you here. But the call to come and die never changes. This is what this means for all of us here. Nobody goes to hell for being a homosexual. You hear me? Nobody goes to hell for being a homosexual. How can I say that? Because nobody goes to heaven for being a heterosexual. <laughs> That's how I can say that. We are condemned for refusal to submit to God. When we exalt our sin over him and what he wants, that is what condemns us. And that sinful heart can be as present in a heterosexual person as well as someone who's gay or lesbian. Jesus said that following him means denying yourself. If anyone comes to me, that's not just gay people about their sexual preferences, that's for us about everything. I love how Rosaria Butterfield, she's an English professor who at one point identified as a lesbian. She says it this way, to follow Jesus, every person must surrender everything. We have to surrender everything. What that means is all my ideas, all my ambitions, all my dreams, all my goals, yes, even my sexuality. I want you to know that God's grace and infinite love and acceptance is here for anyone. But the reality is you have to receive it for yourself. John chapter one, verse 12. But to, you, to, but to as many as received him, it says. It see, received him, this lordship that he offers, this grace that he offers. To them, he gave the power to what? Become children of God to those who believe in his name. God will make you a child of his by his power, but the reality is, reality is you have to receive him, which means in receiving him, you submit to his lordship. You receive his forgiveness and power. At the end of it all, it really comes down to discipleship and following Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus elevates sexual holiness and standards. You would actually expect Jesus in his ministry to kind of act like a Pharisee, right? Hammering his messages. But he does things that just don't seem to go with his teachings. He's, he finds a Roman centurion, heals his servant. He lets a sinful woman wash his feet. He goes to Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus, the, the tax collector, who are a bunch of swindlers, right? He taught the highest standards of sexual ethics, and yet sinners loved him still. 
He taught this and had a reputation for being a friend. Sinners and tax collectors. Some genius Jesus had, right? <laughs> how, how could you operate in this way, right? We've never seen this strong conviction and this compassion paired with each other so well in all of history. And now Jesus has the audacity to call his followers to do the same. How are we doing? How are we doing? Family, my hope is that we will become a place where anyone feels welcome that they feel the love of Jesus, that they would fall in love with him way more than anything else. And I pray that we are walking with people towards that truth. And we're doing that in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. So to you today who identify as LGBTQ+, can I encourage you by pointing you to Jesus? You need to hear me say that because of Scripture, your sexual desires don't define you. Your sexual identity isn't defining you. My prayer for you is that you would allow the love of Jesus to define you. And I pray that that would be true for every single one of us. Because the invitation to come and rest in him is for everyone. So I want to end this sermon the same way I begin it, in prayer. And as we pray, our prayer team is going to come up. If there's anything that we could be praying for you about, we want to be able to do that. My hope is that we understand what God's word says and we live in it. Even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. And that in those moments when we can't see it for ourselves, that we have brothers and sisters who can help us see it clearly as well. Let me pray. Father, we desperately need you and a subject as difficult as this, when it's a little bit more personal because we have friends and family members and personal feelings that we have of our, of our, of our own selves, God, this is hard. I pray, Lord, that you would be patient with us, that even when we navigate these conversations in unhealthy ways, that you would give us grace, that we would be gracious to those that we are walking with. God, I pray that everything that we do would be a marker of your, your impact in our life. Father, I pray that people will see Jesus. That's my hope. That's why Proclamation Church exists. We want to proclaim his excellencies over everything. So Father, let that be true. Let that be known. God, as we leave out of here today, I pray that we would leave out of here in joy knowing what you've done for us through the power of your Holy Spirit, saving us, redeeming us, calling us your own. I pray that we would live in that truth today. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.